0: Gaggen and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. The older we get, the more we lament the passing of the great personalities in the marketplace. Over an after-work drink, we tend to reminisce about the entrepreneurial characters of old and how we wish there were more of their kind today. I know I do. Well, today's guests are proving that this is a myth caused by old age because they're some of the most singular insurance people I've had on the programme to date. Craig Kingaby, CEO of Meridian, and Mark Heath, CEO of Acquia's MGU, both have vast London market and international insurance and reinsurance experience. But what the Meridian business is trying to achieve is something different and a little special. For instance, they're trying to build a London-based diversified specialist insurance group, but one that's almost sitting outside the market. They have big growth plans and are moving fast, but are doing so because the opportunity is from front of them, not because they have to satisfy the ambitions of impatient investors and hit target numbers. They don't have an eye on an exit, but instead on building a generational business, which will stop growing if it ever hits conflicts that might affect its clients. They are largely self-funded and wholly management controlled, and they've even decided to spend a lot of time building their own technology platform. I told you that they're a bit different, They're also ideal interviewees because they can sign off on their own quotes. So what follows is one of the most frank exchanges about how to build a differentiated broking and MGA business that I've ever had. This is a duo that spent decades learning how things should and shouldn't be done and becoming experts in the insurance game. The thing is now they've decided to play their own game. Craig and Mark are great communicators and I think they're onto something interesting. So listen on for a very refreshing and challenging chat about what this new game is all about. Mark speaks first. Enjoy the podcast. Craig and Mark, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. Thank you
1: very much, Mark. Thanks for having us, Mark.
0: Not everybody's going to know you, but I mean, I've known both of you for quite a while. But why not, just to some of the listeners who maybe don't know who you are, just briefly introduce yourselves and and give us a bit of a potted history of your career today, but don't take too long.
2: Okay, looks like I'll go first. Well, me and Craig have known each other for at least 25 years. So that is one of the driving forces for us getting together. But potted history, 35 years plus, all in insurance, all London market-based, but different backgrounds. So Aon or predecessor companies for quite a period of time when Craig and I crossed over. And then more latterly, 10 years at AIG. So I joined as COO for Cat which is Bermuda based insurance. You when company. Doing
0: aviation, you? Exactly. exactly. And then
2: after the Cat access, which was financial lines and casualty, I then transferred from the US company of Arte to the UK and ran aviation. And then shortly afterwards ran aviation including all the specialty lines for the UK. And that included MGA business amongst marine and credit lines and gradual pollution. And then I went back working for the US company of AIG to be Global Chief Underwriting Officer for MGA Business Worldwide. And I was one of three Chief Underwriting Officers. That's a neat segue into what you're doing now with Akis. It is, yes.
1: Craig? So, starting in the business straight from school at 16. Originally the UK retail, broking, and underwriting background. Headed into the world of international reinsurance with PWS in the late 80s through to about 97 where I joined ION as it was becoming ION. So all of the predecessor companies had been acquired, but they were still sort of uh, disparate and separate offices. I'm
0: very familiar with that period of my life.
1: (laughs) Yes, I know, I know. (laughs) And essentially ended up running a variety of different business units within ION and sort of became, I guess, a bit of a turnaround specialist. I was always drawn to the more difficult areas of the business, the things that other people weren't necessarily loving. At some point in there, went off to Cranfield and did some further education, which was filling in some gaps in... Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a business
0: school, isn't it? Sort of MBA yeah. type thing?
1: Yeah. yeah. So kind of a, a kind of exec MBA program, not quite. And I think at that point, I realized that I probably felt that I'd learned everything I needed to know about how not to run a business. <laughs> Being in the organizations I was in, I had a bit of a, a desire to start my own business. So I went off in 2006, started up as an authorized rep, actually, under what was THB at the time, but taking them into the international that's arena. That's when I first
0: met you. You had THB on your card.
1: Yeah. So, I set up the acquisition of PWS that THB then made, and we did various things with that, with my business. I ended up selling my business to them in 2012, but didn't really want to be involved with US private equity, which was essentially the route we were going down. So, one of those interesting things where as a shareholder, it makes sense. Was that sense just was,
0: before the Amwins takeover over around the same so time? It
1: was pretty much back to back. Yeah. Yeah, you know, one with the other. So, decided to leave. I had a sort of three year lockout as a result of the, the sort of non competes and various things that were involved in that. A year where I would have been thrown in prison if I'd opened an ice cream truck. (laughs) And then two years where pretty much the only thing I could look at was the world of MGAs. So I had a little management consulting business, actually his biggest client at the time was Miller, who were looking at the world of NGAs and how do you sort of start from their perspective a third leg to the stall. So that was two years purely spent looking at startups, successes, failures, broker ownership, insurer ownership, independent ownership, systems, tech, people. It was a really interesting sort of period of my life, actually. Came to the end of that, Meridian, some old colleagues of mine had ended up at Meridian. They were asking me wearing my consulting hat to sort of give some advice on where the business might go, which I did initially wearing a consulting hat for a few months. And the long story short with that, I was asked to take over. A so Meridian
0: was always there. I wasn't aware of it. Yeah, so
1: Meridian was established as a, essentially a marine-only sort of insurance broker in 2001 became a lawyer's broker in two thousand and two. So this is actually our twenty first birthday.
0: That's fantastic. Is it right to say that it's only become what we're gonna be talking about now since you joined, or, Because I, I suppose I had in my back of my mind that actually that you were the founder of Meridian, but clearly mm-hmm. that's not correct at all. But it's wonderful this market's full of brokers that are well below the radar and we always think that we're gonna run out of ones to take yes. over. <laughs> but it turns out we're not, are we?
1: Well and I think well to to answer the first part of that question first, I think Tom Hunter Blair was the original founder here. A huge sort of nod needs to be given to the work yeah. that Tom had done pre sort of 2015. Because one of the things about Meridian right the way from its original inception was that this was a business that had a great culture. There were great values in this business, a real client focused. The problem, I guess, or the, the opportunity, if you like, was that it was a kind of an inch wide and a mile deep yeah, at yeah. that point in time. And since myself and various others have become involved, I think that specialization has become wider. So we haven't lost what we had, but we've added a number of things to the business that, that weren't here. So it's very different, but it's definitely not a case that sort of 2015 was the start of the journey.
0: And what you started in 2015, this transformation from a very specialist, very good marine broker to something that's far more diversified. I mean, did that involve investment and, and did that involve getting investors from outside?
1: So it involved investment. So unlike most businesses in London these days, I mean, a good example is that... Mm. Mark and I are personally significantly invested in this business, and I think this is a, I think a big issue in terms of successful organizations that are in the sort of boutique space. There are a lot of organizations where, in my opinion, there is very little downside. There's just a loss of upside if things don't work out. When you are personally investing your own and your kids' financial futures in a business, I think that that, that kind of understanding of downside risk as well as upside risk. So it's quite
0: a big uh, percentage of your net worth, would you say? Yeah, it is. It's a significant uh, There's nothing like focusing the mind. you know. By definitely
2: clarify a lot of things. And I think that is going back at least 25 years. And when Craig and I were working together, we were saying one of these days we should do business together, but actually not just working in, at a place, but actually doing business and investing together because we come from different perspectives, but generally end up at a similar conclusion, but get there different ways. But when you're steeped in a lot of, values and you're putting money on the table and you've got more to lose than anyone else outside if they wanted to come in, then you are quite clear on where you want to go and the people you want to work with,
0: actually. So let's finish off with Meridian, where it's got to today now as a broker. What do you want to be known for? Are you still specialists, but now specialists in lots more things?
1: I think specialization is incredibly important when you're a business like ours, but what are we specialized on? I think, one, we're specialized on being focused on client interests, which is not as usual as you might expect it to be, again, in, in our opinion, in the market that you currently find. We're also specialist in being problem solvers and being innovators, which, again, are not things that I think are as broadly available in the marketplace as, as perhaps they were when I first started in the industry in the late 80s. You know, there was a, a real appreciation of innovative thinking and entrepreneurialism, which I largely think has been sort of bred out of the market as a result of the increasing sort of corporatization and the perhaps short-term nature of financial results that most people are seeking. So that lack of willingness to invest in medium to long-term projects, which is something that Mark and I have always believed in and feel that to achieve good things sometimes takes time and patience.
2: The other thing I think actually, Mark, is partnerships we're not empire building to plant flags and set up offices all over the place but because we're independent and maybe we'll come on to that word which gets used a lot but we're independent privately owned management controlled and that will be the plan going forward as we expand so the team having the control looking for partners that are accretive so that could be geographic as well which it will be geographic and you can make a lot of good decisions quickly a bit like a deal team so whether that is strategic or whether it is problem solving for a client and we operate with an underwriting platform as well as a broking platform so two licenses that connect into the holding company which is populated by a group of bandwidth wise experienced
0: people I've got down later to ask you about whether you should be thought of as a London business, often as, you know, London wholesaler. I'm a journalist. We love having two word prefixes for everything, you know, struggling carrier or whatever, you know, but this London wholesaler, it means something to journalists and it's a shorthand to say. You know, it's not right to say, therefore, London Wholesaler Meridian, because you've got global ambitions, is what you just said.
1: Not only have we got global ambitions, I mean, we are delivering on some of those ambitions already. So we, we purchased uh, some licenses based down in Texas about a month ago. We've got boots on the ground in one or two countries. But to Mark's comment, that isn't about empire building for us. That's about. Just because of a
0: specific need down there.
1: A specific need and, and also about the IP that the right people bring to the overall client offering. It's not about expansion for expansion's sake. It's about knowing the right things and the right people in the right places.
0: What about the channels then? You'd say you want to be a global wholesaler or you're agnostic. Would that be a retail thing in Texas, for example? I'm going to have to get into a little bit of detail there. <laughs> <Is> <laughs> you... well, not specific. it doesn't have no, to be exactly, specific about no. the Texas thing, no, but exactly. I'm just saying, some people say, well, I'll never be retail here. Yes, it's a very
2: interesting and a good comment, because if we put broking and underwriting for a second separately, because they are separate business models, obviously, on the broking side some large transactions that come from an overseas territory, we actually handle as a quasi-retailer because it's risk consulting. So all the things that comes with that, which is involved actuarial reports, talking with the principals generally at a very frequent basis about where their business is going, what the problems are in their territory or with their own risk. So on that sense, the contract at the end of the day might even look like a insurance contract, but actually it's been consulting directly with the retail So it's more uh, like the sort of
0: global specialty idea that has been mooted.
2: Yeah. And that's actually where we can operate as a deal team with people around the business that have got the experience and the know-how, regardless of putting labels on what the end solution will be. So that's, if you like, an example within the broking house. On the underwriting side, and we'll like to get into this because we're set up as an MGU, which a lot of people actually gloss over that as to what the hell does MGU mean versus MGU? Well, I've always been slightly um, Oh, okay. You know. Maybe part of this is just our own interpretation, but essentially, whether it is or isn't, doesn't really matter. An MGU to us is a little bit like the holding company, but it's the entity that's got the FCA permissions to underwrite on behalf of insurer partners, and it has the technology the systems, the behavior, the underwriting controls, getting involved in the underwriting strategy through to the guidelines and how things are run, and then setting up separate MGAs within it or underneath it. The
0: MGAs are the sort of separate cells, but the overarching group holding company or the group operating company is is the MGU.
2: Absolutely. So some MGAs expand, or a lot of MGAs obviously expand sideways because they've got different products that they can bolt on. But the underwriting side is specifically set up as a business model to have a portfolio of different non-correlating and accretive MGAs doing just different specialties. So if you take one of the next MGAs that we're setting up, which is construction, the construction MGA, first of all, will become global. First phase is the UK. And the two parts of that And first phase is London market construction, CAR, single projects and annual contractors, which will be wholesaled through the London brokers. The other bit will be retail into the UK regional market. So we apply the channel, the most effective channel, where there's added value on what's applicable to that topic that we're addressing. So, we're sort of agnostic to the channel, actually. That's why I no, said going down in a little bit more detail no, because we're good. neither wholesale or retail. But what we aren't, we do not, and we're able to do this being independent, is we're able to make decisions where we truthfully, because that's a benefit of being able to be a, an investor and operating the company is being truthful for customers that we never do business with two customer sectors or sections that compete with each other. And a lot of other intermediaries, whether it's an MGA or a broking house, end up getting themselves into pickles with Chinese walls, which is the only solution they've got to be able to say, yeah, you know, we're in the same sector, but we don't conflict with you.
0: then you've got to sort of start segmenting the team and then half those people are sitting
2: in the same desk. Because we pick
0: partners. So you're trying to pick the best clients
2: and and they'll grow with you, they'll grow for you. So that we can then get deeper into
1: that. And that's also important that you have, to some degree, an upper ambition to your growth. Now, that's not a number. That's a point at which the values on which you've based your business become compromised because of the activities that you're undertaking. So we're very, very clear that there is an upper ambition in terms of where we're trying to get to. And that's the point at which we stop being able to be that client-centric, innovative, sort of alternative thinking, service-driven.
0: The minute business. you get a conflict, you know you're probably you're starting to hit the buffers yeah, of yeah, what you can do in terms of growth. You, you probably have to just diversify then. About, yeah,
2: because it? there's a lot, obviously, a load of great companies in this square mile and much broader than that. But lots of them are a lot bigger than
0: we would want to be. Sorry to interrupt in mid-flow, but this is just a reminder. That you could be advertising right here, right now, and getting your message directly into the ear of key decision makers in the insurance industry. And you'll be doing it while they're absolutely in listening mode. The Voice of Insurance has just run through 300,000 downloads. If each of those had had a 60-second ad in them, that would make 83 hours of talking to the industry, for a fraction of the cost of alternative media. The podcast is the medium of the future, and so is audio advertising. Contact me on mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com and I'll do everything I can to get you started. And what we don't want to be is a factory.
2: And we also don't want to have set formulas that this is how that silo, which you can't step out of, has to operate within that formula. So if you end up starting to become like that or having conflicts, It's a flag, as you said, Mark. But other companies do that. That's a business model. Be really big, scale, scale, scale. And that's not our ultimate game.
0: What gave you the idea for Mark? Obviously, you've had that latter experience of being CEO of all the MGAs that that, uh, AIG's backing. So it's a huge variety of things.
2: Well, first of all, a common like-mindedness and meeting of the minds with me and Craig, because at the time, Meridian, who already structured a a holding company, simply to be able to be the owner and steerer and operator of the broking house and then an underwriting agency. So there was the strategy of setting up an underwriting agency. And the pillars really that we agreed on very quickly was an MGU to build a portfolio of MGAs, let's just say over a... A handful of years would be 15 NGA's. Say so no particular magic number, but a decent portfolio that were concentrating on different specialisms, had common themes of technology, data insights, collaborating with third parties that are generally outside the insurance industry, but overlap as a concentric circle. So we would know how to apply their data insights into a risk side but we wouldn't be able to build probably what they've done. So it was technology, data insights, collaboration with third parties and de-risking the risk before we underwrite it. So that goes both ways, giving the customers an ability to give them some, let's say, early warning system that helps them or some service and then also de-risks the exposure before we underwrite
0: it on behalf of our carriers. So would you say that's the common thread? And just run us through what you've got. You've got a UK SME, um, small and medium-sized enterprise um, book. And also Intangic, which is a very high-end parametric cyber outage product. Yes,
2: it's a good example. So the first one was UK. And then obviously you've got
0: this construction one coming up.
2: yeah. So the first one was UK territory, SMEs, as you said, and property and casualty. We actually have a flood Prediction service within that, that we provide free to customers that gives them 48 hour advance warning of surface water flood. So that's obviously the flood's largest NAT in this country. Yep. So we've started to make some inroads into the topic of flood. And that helps SME customers through the technology we've got to receive alerts directly on their mobiles and on the email. And we send it to the loss adjuster so that surface water flood is, they can move expensive contents and machinery out of the way. So whilst that is in a traditional good sector, we've had an edge to that. And then the second one, as you said, Mark, is Tangic, which is a cyber early warning system before the material breach happens. And also cyber risk transfer, which happens to be on a parametric, very clean trigger. And that is UK and US focused, but for large corporate publicly quoted companies. So it's got, so different. It's very different. And That's deliberately made up that way. So you can see that data is the theme, technology is the theme and some solutions. Yeah. And then the next one, as we briefly mentioned, is construction. And we've got a handful of others that are in the
0: pipeline. And how are you going to bring data into construction? Well, presumably you can throw in the flood because obviously they, they haven't got a yep. roof on yet, have they? So <laughs>
2: Yes, we can. And it's interesting. We're working on a part of construction on the types of construction and some of the areas that the market currently don't like. And it's because they don't have all the insights probably that they don't currently have so we're working with a couple of external parties to come out with a way of underwriting some construction that's currently and the property risk is currently seen as high risk and we think that we can help out there so sounds like a bit mystical because we're in development stages but we're doing it
0: with data well, either cherry pick the ones that are in the bad bucket, but are actually quite good. Exactly. Or what help mitigate the ones that are seen as bad, but actually aren't that bad if you do the mitigation.
2: Yeah, precisely.
0: Where there's a bit of a dislocation, where we think in this particular
2: segment of construction, the market are really just being opportunistic in pushing much higher rates. And if you do a bit of digging, actually they probably (laughs) deserve... A better treatment.
0: That's oh, good yeah. for doing a bit of digging in construction. This yes. sounds <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that. C A R, by the way, C A R was an abbreviation earlier. I've didn't I usually try and intervene and, and get rid of yes. abbreviation. So constructional risk, I'm sure everyone knows that. Yes. Craig, what about MA in all of this? This is a very organic kind of model that you're pursuing, you know, putting your own money into a business is about as organic as something can be, really, if you haven't even gone to private equity or to the bank manager or whatever to help lever that up a little bit. What about M&A then? So it sounds like you're not the sort of company that would be doing that, you'd be more likely to want to bring people in to add new strands to what you're doing, but at the same time
1: It's a combination.
0: You won't be buying businesses.
1: No, well, we've already bought some. I think we've made five very small, very targeted acquisitions. So but what do we look for in an acquisition? Which is perhaps the more important question. Uh, Firstly, culture. Culture, 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 culture. Everything that we do around this business, we're very clear about the kind of business we're building, we're very clear about the kind of people that we want in the business. And actually, I think one of the things of actually being additive to bandwidth when we make an acquisition as opposed to detracting from bandwidth within the existing business, that's kind of quite important to us. So we've tended to find small specialist businesses with people that have significant ambition to go somewhere, but perhaps aren't in the right frame of mind or don't have the developed platform and approach that we have. And the idea is to get behind those people and to help them build out their specialty or whatever it is they're trying to achieve. So M&A is definitely on the list, but we're not. It
0: sounds like more merging in rather than being fully acquired. Well,
1: one of the things we generally are avoiding is the kind of acquisition that sees us parting with a huge amount of cash for people that are going to hit the beach in the south of France next week. (laughs) A a lot of it is about people that have a medium or long-term interest in the future success of the combined business now, whether you achieve those with cash or whether it's and share And you want them exchanges, to be folding in
0: their equity in with you.
1: Always possible options. And the point is, generally speaking, we're not looking to be the tomorrow exit plan for people because we've seen so often now that doesn't really work.
0: You want people who in the middle of the journey and they want to keep going, but they want to go a bit faster with well, first a thing, partner.
1: Yeah, absolutely. first thing we want people to get where we are trying to go as a business. And part of that is about longevity and, and having a – plan that lasts beyond the next five minutes. A great example would be owners that are looking to retire.
0: Now, yeah, I mean, that's a classic scenario, isn't it? Where perhaps where they haven't necessarily done the succession planning that they've been putting off. And then finally, they realize that they probably should have done.
1: Absolutely. And one of the beauties about being as we are, which is essentially management control now, is that we can be as flexible as we want to be about whether it's making an acquisition or hiring a team or hiring individuals to build out behind them. We can do that in whichever way we feel is most appropriate to the business, and it's a yeah m and a is a very nuanced thing, and again, I think if you look around the market, one of the reasons that so many of the m and a transactions again, in my opinion, are not that successful is too much of the vagaries and the detail really aren't understood or not cared about by the either the acquiring party or the seller. It's very clear to us we are buying things that will be ours. And we'll be part of our business because we're not looking to sell our business on to somebody else in the next five minutes. Therefore, the acquisition has got to be accretive. It's got to be value. It's got to be customer focused. It's got to be with people that have a similar mindset to ours. And again, we're very comfortable with this. It makes the pool of potential acquisitions small. But in our view, they tend to be very, very high quality. So we take a lot of time getting into something, but they tend to take off pretty quickly, I think, once the, the deals are done.
0: So it's interesting you mentioned about that long-term ambition of your own business. It was a question I was going to ask you later, but what's that final vision? It doesn't sound like you've got, well, when I hit this number, I'm just going to sell it and buy a yacht. It sounds like you wanted to build something a bit more permanent.
1: Absolutely. And you know, we talk, and sometimes you can be called out on this, I think, but you know, we talk about a multi-generational business that we're trying to build and building a business that is saleable, but not a business to sell. And why do I say saleable? If you build any business in this market that doesn't have... The right approach to technology, to operations, to finance, and to all the other things that you need to have in order to build a successful business, you're going to be in trouble. Some people will shoot me for this one, but this is in no way a lifestyle business. Now, it's a great place to work. And we work with some really good people and we enjoy it. But if anyone thinks this is an excuse to turn up somewhere and have an easy life, that's really not what we are. This is a very hard-working place where people are given the opportunity to achieve their own end goals
0: but it's a different sort of ambition so Absolutely. you want to build something that's small and beautiful and probably the best or one of the absolute best and the specialisms that it's in is that the right sort of thing to come away with
1: close but not quite i'll use some examples if you look a, at a benfield of 15 years ago yeah my view of that business at that point in time and the market changes and things change but some of the core qualities i think they had a group of seven or eight people at the top of that business who had highly complementary skills, were extremely good at what they did, had a real bond and sort of trust between them. It didn't mean they were best friends living in each other's back pockets. It meant they were good business people that were extremely experienced at what they did. And I think bringing that together and acting as the catalyst to bring that kind of group of people together, that's really been the driving sort of mission from when I first started here in 2015, 2016.
0: But like Benfield, you're not going to suddenly end up IPOing and then doing big US acquisition and all that kind of stuff. No,
1: it's not the plan. And (laughs) and I guess, to to some degree, talking about this being a multi-generational business, I think the people that will make that decision probably won't be Mark and I. They will be the people that come behind us. And we're really comfortable with that.
0: How do you engineer that? Because that's a really difficult thing to do historically with those very nicely formed businesses where you've got significant equity holders who are very senior, who are the founders or whatever, you know, the drivers of that business for many years, for the first couple of decades, without having to have a liquidity event, how do you get those other people in, into that equity position where they can keep building it?
1: Yeah, we have models which allow people to exit this business and create some value on exit without the business having to be sold. It's important that you recognize that if people are going to come and commit the next five or six years of their life. The
0: capital for that in other intermediaries, businesses, that's often kind of semi permanent private equity capital of some hmm. description. That's the Interesting way... Interesting
1: use of the phrase semi-permanent and private well, equity. It's, well, let's
0: say it's longer term than some private equity or interchangeable that, you know, yes. we, we, you have events where you're bringing in different investors, some repeat, but that capital is there, the liquidity that is being used to allow people to take some money off the table to sell some of their shares if they want to, and also to keep that continuity going so yep. that employees can come and go, but the business can remain.
2: Yes. We might be different and obviously it's something to do with size and we were talking a little bit earlier about the rebranding of the Lloyds broker and thinking differently and so forth. So I think the first thing is, is that right now it's a great time to be who we are actually and anyone else of our sort of makeup because interest rates are going up, which hurts everyone personally, obviously, but we're not fueled by a load of debt. In fact, nothing like that and therefore we don't have I'm not suggesting that others have demonstrated this but it is difficult to keep your principles and your behavior the same if the
0: agenda has now changed because the interest rates have really ramped up yeah i had a carrier on the show recently who said well I'll tell you what my brokers are going to go and sell that price increase because they need to pay their own mortgage, don't they? You they need to pay their own bank manager back because they've borrowed five hundred million or whatever. So, well, that that, that means they're gonna sell that client. And it's like, well it's not necessarily in the client's best interest, <laughs> No, exactly. <laughs> I don't want to so, be that
2: client. It's, so actually for us, it's a very exciting time because we as a business have a site on four, five, six years where we want to be, okay? But that's a business plan and the ambition. Of we're already executing, executing under our own firepower. And obviously we could go quicker if there was some additional firepower behind us but we wouldn't give up management control because then you lose all of that fabric and the qualities and the agility that we were talking about yes but the first point when you were sort of saying how do you build behind you when you're thinking of multi-generational is actually as craig was saying when you're viewing mergers or acquisitions is people at the top of the table who you are talking to can they be on the board with you and do they share the excitement of that next five years of where we're going and oh, we have got a big pipeline of different building blocks that have been lined up because we've been working on it for couple of years. So if you are an outside investor looking at it, they would see a plethora of things where money can be spent. But actually, we don't want money or too much capital because we want to make sure we're getting like-minded people that join us that share the next five years together. And we're
0: buying, if you like, partners for extra horsepower. And I suppose you'd be happy going ever so slightly slower if it meant you kept kept the absolute control, kept the quality.
1: Well, the thing is, it depends what game you're playing. We're playing our own game. We're outside of the market, basically. And we're very comfortable doing that. Now, if you look at, I think, a number of the businesses around the market over the last 15 years, they have had to change the game that they're playing because of their capital structure. So, you know, it's a double-edged sword. To me, this is about quality. As it is with running our own business. It's not about quantity of investment as much as it is about quality of investment. So we have currently the only sort of external ownership we have with some family office, family trusts, non-related family trusts, Mm -hmm. completely benign investors who are investing in us as a management team. And one of the reasons they're investing in us is because we've got our own chips on the table and we're not looking to take those chips off of the table. That leads to a very different relationship with your investors a much more understanding relationship. And I think early on in COVID actually was a great example where we were sitting there, God knows what we were preparing for because we just didn't know. And you, you might argue that second quarter 2020 was the precisely the moment you didn't want to be a privately owned, heavily self-invested business, particularly one that was heavily exposed to international markets. But at that point, we preemptively went to some of our external partners and said, we want to make sure that we don't have any issues. And they were, yeah, okay, we get that. This is all going to go away eventually. And we'll therefore top up our investment. At the same time, both Mark and I and some others put some additional money into the business. You don't kind of get that with other investor relations, I think.
0: And I think really so important Other company. businesses do very different things.
1: Yeah. So quality of capital is incredibly important. But if you look at the market landscape for the investor community, I think two years ago, when we were telling this story. As you know, the amount of money that is looking to get into the quality businesses in this market is just incredible. Yeah, There's a huge amount of capital looking for access to the market. But if you look at where the market was two years ago, there was this whole, forgive the phraseology, but there's this whole stack it high, sell it cheap, how many things can you buy and how quickly. To which our response was, you know what, we want the right amount of capital, necessity is the mother of invention we're great believers in this, do the right things for the right reasons with the right customers and the right people. And so 90% of everybody at that point was like, yeah, okay, well, we we definitely don't want to talk to you. Funnily enough, I was reading a Sunday Times a couple of months ago, which was one of the VCs talking about what they were really interested in investing in. And there'd been an article 18 months previously by the same VC. And the profile of their investments, completely different. So we want a robust business with a good and experienced leadership team with a clear vision that spinning off profit isn't indebted. (laughs) and, And it was kind of like the general market has come from being a long way away from where we are as a business to pretty much the world and his wife looking at the few businesses like ours that remain.
0: Well, investors change their appetites, certainly. they? You know, they're, they're fully risk on. Why aren't you leave it up? Why aren't you doing this? Why aren't yep. you going faster? And then it's like, oh, why are you leave it up? I don't want you to be leave it up anymore. I'm, I'm. That's dangerous, you know. Um, blah blah blah. Why aren't you more conservative? Why didn't you <laughs> yeah, conserve so now, cash? Even yes. now, Mark,
1: we recently had a conversation with an investor who shall not be named, um, and we were sort of saying, okay, you know, our plan is around ABC, and that requires X amount of additional capital to accelerate this. They loved it. They loved the story. And their immediate response is, so what do you want to do with two times X or three times X? And our point was not have any further conversations with you because you're just not getting it. We think you need the right amount of capital. You don't need too much. And actually, anyone that is kind of pushing this agenda of ultra-accelerated acquisition, that's just not our game. That's not where we want to be. We have a big enough plan. We think it will be a very successful plan. And we think it's Unique is an overused term, but it's close to being unique in the market in its current state, and we're happy with it.
0: And those third-party investors mentioned those family offices. I mean, these are sort of investments that are likely to be very long-term.
1: Absolutely. I mean, there is no end to those investors.
0: They either have to start getting dividends or take a capital gain at some point, like all investors, but um, I suppose but they're happy to wait around until you're big enough for that to be quite an easy thing to do.
1: Well, and the, the, obviously the greater alignment, we invest on the same basis mm. that they invest. So yeah. if it's a dividend play, then it was something that will benefit all shareholders at the same moment. So I think they as investors rely very heavily on the fact that you know we're not completely stupid. You know, We're not, <laughs> we're not looking to give our money away for the sake of it. We're looking for a return as well. We have, you have to run this business commercially.
0: Well, thanks a lot. You've been really, really frank on that. In fact, you were talking about different pillars on the stool. Obviously, you've got two different pillars here yeah. uh, represented. And well, yeah, obviously, Craig, I think you're on the board of both. So, what would be the relationship between Meridian, the broker, and Accius, the, the MGA? Often you see, you know, that the broker is quite a big producer to the MGA. What's your philosophy on that?
1: So, how would you like me to scare the pants off of most other intermediary groups in the market that own both an MGA business and a broking business? Our original philosophy, and this comes back to the management consulting piece of work that I did. 2014 to 16, is that our broker doesn't do business with our MGI. Now, it's not an absolutely incontrovertible rule, And obviously, in terms of securing capacity for our MGI, we would, we would like to think that that's a, that's a service that we would be, as our broker, would be more than capable of providing. But I think this idea of kind of extra clips of the ticket or whatever the current phraseology is, is not something that we think is right. You know, we were running two separate and distinct businesses. We have a broking business, which is essentially a consultancy advisory business that gets paid through an execution. We're trying to build a group of business people acting within our broking unit. And then we have an underwriting business, which is all about alternative tech, alternative distribution, alternative product. These two things can happily sit alongside each other without conflicting with each other.
0: Yeah, because there's nothing necessarily wrong, particularly if Mark cooks up this fantastic product that everyone's got to have that some of your clients on the broken side must have, then surely you would not say, well, I'm not we, doing it. We wouldn't it. disadvantage a yeah. yeah. client,
1: but the, the point is more often than not in the current market, I would suggest. I mean, you're not
0: particularly interested in producing business to your own MGA. No. Yeah. You just you know, If it happens, it happens, but it will be because they've got superior products, superior yeah. service, and superior everything else.
1: There's a hell of a lot of nuance in that statement, yes, and of you course. can cover a, a multitude of sins with that statement. So I think we're comfortable being very clear that our basic proposition is our broking clients don't do business with their MGA because actually, if they want to access that MGA directly, they don't need us. Do you know, it's
2: a simple, old-fashioned, straightforward model in a way, because obviously contractually, every MGA acts and underwrites on behalf of the insurer partners, insurance companies, lawyer syndicates, etc., And the broking license contractually operates to do the best job for its customer. Okay. So day one, the very first You're thing. Immediately conflicted, do not you? Yeah. So day one, the very first thing that Craig and I said is let's have a separately regulated, FCO regulated underwriting agency, separately regulated to the Lloyds broker, that reports into a holding company. The founder, Tom Hunter Blair, Craig and I sit on the holding company board. We all know how to handle conflicts of interest, and it's not a broker owned MGU. It's not an MGA. It's not a broker owned MGU. So it starts in that whole premise of knowing who you are working for. We act on the underwriting side as if we we're a branch office of the insurer. Absolutely. And you're not just like thinking that. about distribution so, sometimes. Yeah, it's so just, it, yeah, so that's where we always come from. So if someone's asking us all sorts of different questions about it, that's where we start. But actually, If there's a way that is a benefit of solving a problem and it's accretive to the customer as well as the insurance provider, then we'd be able to do it because we operate with two licenses. But it's very fundamentally a non-broker owned underwriting agency. But
1: the subsidiary part of the question you asked was about where does it come together? And I I think Mark already mentioned this whole idea of of sort of shared IP and deal teams. Mm. So let's call it a, a holding company level we're able to look at problems. And fundamentally, the relationship between both sides of the house is they are aimed at being problem-solving businesses. So when you get a problem, particularly in a broking portfolio, so it may be an MGA customer of the broker, we will often get half a dozen people that span both sides of the business sitting in a room saying, okay, so how do you solve a problem like this? And that gives you the ability of looking at it both with a kind of pure underwriting mindset and a sort of advisory mindset and coming up with the right solution. I think one of the things that we look to do, particularly within the breaking business, not great with this whole terminology about challenger brands and disruption, but actually if you look at the value chain within a lot of large program businesses, and actually the US is a great example of this. where Perfect example. An MGA owner that deals directly with a, hybrid fronting carrier. I'd love someone to explain what the word hybrids and fronting mean that are different from any other form of carrier, but you have that. So there's no broker involvement. Then you'll have a reinsurance broker. I've seen reinsurance MGAs, retro brokers and reinsurers in a chain where virtually nobody understands the language that the other people are talking. And so I think we look at lots of things like that. So you have to ask yourself some fairly fundamental questions. Who's the client? When you're looking at all this, who's the client? Because everyone is claiming we're doing this because actually it's about having some sanctity over who the client is. So the reinsurance broker's client is the front end carrier. But then you'll have tripartite contracts between the MGA, the carrier, and the reinsurer. So in actual fact, it's already. Cutting right through um, to who is the client. So we look for those things as they're very complex, but actually they're not really. When you really get to understand who's looking for what in this and where is the real value being added.
2: It's a very good example because we've all worked for much larger companies, whether it's broking or underwriting or both. And it's very difficult for really big companies to put together experienced individuals who are working in different siloed teams and might not be as experienced in knowing how to handle all these different conflicts. But actually, when you're actually able to operate a real deal team, whether it's direct reinsurance, retrocession, captives and accessing different type of capital as well, and you've got all sorts of different agreements that come through that, then depending on what part of the process you're in when you pick up a document, it could be a very different type of agreement on the face of it if you pick up another document halfway down the chain. So with us, with the approach of a deal team, With like-minded people, we can work on, right, this needs something that fundamentally needs to be more transparent. And all of us can understand the end-to-end process so that the customer can understand that. And actually, going back to a comment that Craig said about clipping the ticket, we deliberately don't do that to clip the ticket. We deliberately do it to look at it once. And a lot of the time, the customers are realising how many tickets are being clipped. And every time that happens, it's not just a matter of money, Is there's another little link where the information and knowledge gets lost yes. and potentially gets misunderstood. So you've got to have this a whole alignment. They're all potentially in so, O's, aren't and, they? Yeah. yeah, and they are the problem-solving ones that we get involved in.
0: What about looking forward? In your plans, you've got the two main pillars – What's the ideal balance, or I presume, obviously, reality will just get in the way, and you know, some will grow faster than others. What what would you ideally like to be as a balance of revenue?
1: We've been working to a very deliberate plan. And the reason, mm-hmm. apart from you haven't asked us, I mean, the reason yeah, we what's the sat size
0: of you now, actually, by the way, I should have said I, that was right at the beginning. I managed to miss that out. What, what sort of size are you in terms of GWP intermediated?
1: Largely, we're a broking business, so I don't like talking about GWP. <laughs> we talk about brokerage, and I'll, yes. I'll give you a, a broad number, which is. We're about three times the size we were five years ago, okay? (laughs) At the same time as getting to that point, we've improved our technology, massively changed the culture of the business, put in place, I think, a very credible vision about where we're trying to increase the number and quality of the leadership team at the top of the organization, which are all things that I'm a lot more proud of than the growth, because the growth could have actually been a lot greater if we'd compromised on some of those other things. Again, the, the reason we didn't compromise and didn't have to compromise is because we sit outside of the market we can be as big or as small as within reason as we want to be now but the other point is there's no point being the and it's kind of more important in terms of where we are and where we're going i think there's no point being the best thing in the market that nobody's ever heard of yeah you know so the opportunity so i just have to trust
0: you that there is scale there but you just don't really want to talk about it right now
1: Exactly, I think And you've got the
0: resources. That's the main thing. Is also, you've got those resources to be in that game. You might be out of yeah. the market, but you've got to be in the game for the technology. That's not cheap right, necessarily, right. or you can't really do it on the cheap, anyway. Yeah. I mean, it's we always recur. we can't. That's interesting. Yeah, that's technology.
2: Well, on the underwriting side and on the broking side, there are some crossovers with processing technologies, okay? But actually, we are not developers ourselves and program managers, but what we do know pretty well is how the functionality should be of a technology and also how to apply the technology to what we need it to do. And that's a subtle difference there. There's also the reality that it is a lot cheaper and more affordable than maybe what a lot of people think with technology. You've got to keep what we would say scanning the horizons. So whilst our business model is collaborating with third parties that are typically outside the insurance industry and they've developed some very good data insights, that in a sense is obviously one part of helping modeling going forward. But the running the business technology on the underwriting side, we built our own with a third party company. And it took us over a year because the plan was always to be MGU portfolio of MGAs writing different specialisms. Yeah. So it couldn't be something that you buy off the shelf. And if you buy off the shelf, it's a lot quicker and you get up and running a lot quicker. But then what's the point if you've got a you have greenfield to all site? All away. Yeah, exactly. 18 months' time. Uh, so, and also, you get boxed in with the technology provider then if you've taken something off the shelf. If you've developed something, then it's not then going to be on general release to everyone else. And you've also got the ability to build an end-to-end rather than buying you take that bits risk, and though, pieces. But you're taking you the risk
0: of the execution of it not you, functioning yes, the way you want it. then to do
2: that research. wasn't ever going to be
0: an option.
1: Because we are doing
0: you know it. Enough, you've got a, yes. enough experience to know who you can partner with and who's yes. going to deliver well, for you. Well, I, yep. I just
1: want to go back to, because again, our plan is a well-thought-through long-term plan. Part of the reason that we started Akiis the way we did, a large part of the reason, was that body of work that I put together wearing my management consulting hat in sort of 14 and 15. One of the big reasons that MGA groups failed or struggled was the over-promise and under-delivery that they made on technology before underwriting groups actually got into the business. So you saw a lot of them that were very quick out of the box because... They hired some people with income quickly. Things happened quickly. But they got to a certain size, and they had to scrap everything and start again, because the minute the underwriters turned up within the business, they realized that their systems were awful, and they didn't do what they needed them to do. So you then become a very people-intensive business, because you're, you're having to make up for your lack of technology. So the agreement that Mark and I had before Mark joined the business is that the first thing we would do would be to not hire a single underwriter until... We had built the platform that we knew could be scaled. So that means it's a much slower start. But actually, when you get going and when you've done the right so you've testing. you've got the you big go empty
0: reservoir that you can fill with your data lake with yeah. and all that stuff. Yes. It's a lot of digging first. Yes, yeah. it's a lot of digging first. Exactly. <laughs> and again, I come back yes. to you
1: can only do these things in a management controlled business. Because if, if you were to make that case to a variety of other investors that you were going to hire some very expensive, very experienced people, and you're going to let them spend 12 or 18 months tooling around with the technology that existed before you started to write business, everyone would think you were mad. Now, if you understand our business and you understand how it works and you understand how things develop, it's actually quite a sane decision, particularly if you're not, again, as Mark says, I think the technology to do the things that most of us do has existed for quite some time in our business. Yes. It's it's Mm. the lack of knowledge or desire, you talk about the resources to deliver technological advancement. And the resources aren't necessarily cash. I don't think they are particularly cash intensive. It's the interest, the knowledge, the desire to actually it's do the it. Time it. Spend it is time the time, spending much of the time.
2: you know, one of the exciting things is that, is that first of all it is not rocket science to get a good technology platform but it takes time um, and the other thing is is that once you've got a digital plug you can then part of your partnership is figuring out who's got a digital socket <laughs> uh, because in fact, although, to Craig's point about the technology being around for a long while, APIs, okay, have been around for a long while, and transfer of data but Not enough is, people are using them. But, but also, a lot of the insurance partners and so forth aren't used to APIs. They haven't got mature APIs or the loss adjusters. But if you're in the position to deploy APIs very quickly... If you're dealing with someone that hasn't got a digital socket, but actually has the attitude and wants to get to that place, they're exactly the sort of partner that we can work with. So as an example, although the market relies on baldros that came in to try and make things more efficient, you could argue that technology has overtaken, why the hell are we still operating on boudros? But the fact Mm. is, is that what the insurers, who we are an insurer, struggle with is late board rows, not enough data and so on. So we provide all of our insurer partners with a live dashboard to see our data and the performance of the portfolios. So they can log on any day or at night and see that we still provide them with the borderos because that's the way our market that's asks what, for. what they want.
0: <laughs> well, what's funny is I just had a special episode with Viper. Of course, the whole business is about ingesting Borders and we certainly came to the conclusion there was no way on earth that we're ever going to quite get rid of borderos just yet. I said, well, you know, we're in this fully digital world where everything's API'd here and there. Anyone can just create whatever management information they want, because all the border is a load of management information, isn't it? But, but this is, well, it's not culturally going to happen yet. So we've still got this fantastic product that will do that, and that product is going to last for at least another 20 years. Yes. Well,
1: the risk of being controversial, you get into this whole subject of turkeys don't necessarily vote for Christmas. as <laughs> separate and distinct from what Accius does on the technology front. If you look at what the Lloyd's Broker does, so we are not a technology business, but we are an incredibly – process-efficient business in terms of the way we embrace the things that are available and out there in the market. Viper, funnily enough, being one of our suppliers. But okay. I would suggest that we did a lot of work with Viper in the early stages to actually improve their products. That's fine.
0: Everyone's going to be really engaged. You, Otherwise, yeah, you're never going to get what you want. Yes. But this isn't yeah. a
1: competitive environment.
0: Yeah. yeah,
1: The only role I have outside of the group and Lloyd's broker role here is on the advisory board of White Space. Now, I think if you were sitting down with Marcus or with... Tim Raynor or any of them, they would acknowledge that we as a business, as small as we were and are, have done a hell of a lot to help drive the direction that white space have gone in, because we want them as a technology provider to actually be really out there. Now that isn't the case for all other participants because, you know, a terrorist unit doesn't fight a standing army toe to toe. You know, you find different ways of of attacking the problem. You have a market, unfortunately, which I think there's Clients are paying, and I question for how long they will continue to pay, for a lot of overpriced, low-quality administration dressed up as service innovation, expert knowledge. Call it what you will. You know, we as a business are in a very lucky position of saying, well, we're building this in the shape of what we think the right business of the future looks like. We don't want any of that. We want people that have got really open minds that will look to develop personally because they recognize that in the future, the roles they're currently doing are, are not going to exist. They need to be looking at the next thing. You have to create a really trusting, nurturing culture to have people in the business sort of saying, OK, yeah, well, I'll, I'll look at the next thing. I'll take the next thing. I'll, yeah. I'll drive for the next thing.
0: You've got to have the confidence to know that you're never going to put yourself out of a job. You're just going to create more exactly. work for yourself and, and what, because you're going to be able to do more. And one yes. of the
1: things about us is, as you know, a point of difference, when, so Yori, Sorry to the listeners that Yori hasn't been introduced, but Yori is our Head of Operations and Strategic Delivery. Sitting
0: quietly in the corner. Sitting quietly in the corner,
1: making sure we don't say anything wrong. But when Yori joined after a 36-year career in the British Army and having achieved all sorts of things that lots of other people could only dream of, we didn't quite know why he was coming on board. We didn't quite know what we were going to do. And the first conversation we had was about leadership development. And sort of talking about some of the things that both Mark and I have been exposed to, be it business schools or personal coaching or whatever it might be. And the long story short, we introduced a leadership course which had 20 hours of personal development delivered by Yori to everyone in the company, T-Boy to, to Chen, encompassing things like toxic leadership and constructive challenge and all the things that you need to do in order to move forward as an organization. Technology is divorced in the way it's spoken about from leadership and divorced from people. But these are all smaller parts of a larger subject.
0: I think Yuri's going to be waving at us because we're probably going over time. So I'm going to ask you one last question. Obviously, we're always trying to get the best possible talent. And obviously, you've built a platform that you hope is going to attract that great talent. So when you meet that talent, and you've got people you've had your eye on for years, other sort of people you've known for a long time, a bit like the way you've known each other. And then you finally kind of pitch the idea to each other to do what you're doing now, what do you pitch to those people? What are you selling to them? What do you want them to buy into? And you say, come and join us. Because <laughs> obviously, you know, there are other potential employers out there or
1: they're probably yeah. their current employer. So let's condense the whole of the last hour and 20 minutes. Yeah, well, into it's a good sound of doing one I, think. Soundbite. No, I, I think firstly, we're looking for partners, right? We're looking for people that perhaps don't feel they've yet achieved their full potential. And they're looking for an environment in which they can be entrepreneurs. They can develop themselves. They can look after their customers the way that they want to look after their customers. So firstly, we're not fighting the same fight that other people are fighting. Uh, Mark and I had a dinner with a well-known CEO of a large broking organization last year. Yeah, I'm sure a very intelligent guy, but hugely incentivized by private equity and personal earnouts for certain things to happen, all that sort of stuff. And this person was bitching and moaning about the cost of hiring talent because they all wanted to be paid. And we were kind of going, we don't have that problem, right? We we just don't have that issue because the people that come here want to come here. Everyone's got mortgages and bills to pay and families to look after. And absolutely, a business has to be able to meet those criteria. But you have to have a purpose beyond money to be here. And I think that's really important. And that's what we pitch. If you've got an interest which stretches beyond money, that is about building something which is unique, and special, and something you can be proud of, then this is an organization to join and be the best you that you can be. I'd say
2: as well that it's like being like-minded to join a family business, which has now come out and we're growing lines of business, underwriting entities, and creating value over a period of time so what we're not in we're not waving a checkbook that everyone knows that you're waving a big checkbook which is when craig referred to this chief exec who's good guy running a large operation Unfortunately, every time he gets out his checkbook, people know that they're paying a huge premium. And we're actually, (laughs) we're actually appealing to people that whether it's because of COVID has changed people's reflections on the type of company they want to work for, the decision making that they're actually going to be able to make without any politics, the deal teaming attitude applied to the business with experienced people that. You can make a difference. It's really that owner-operator feeling that this is a company that is growing with a determination, without being pushed. So, as you said a bit earlier, if we have to go a bit slower, we'll go a bit slower. But we actually would prefer to go pretty quickly. So that's where we are. So, from a company that was born 21 years ago, we are now rapidly
0: increasing our pace. Like a snowball, do you think you're getting that momentum now? You can really get it rolling downhill.
1: If you look at Jan 23 to July 23, you can be the judge of that. Launched the world's first cyber parametric MGA in the process of launching a construction MGA, signed a share purchase agreement, which will see us acquiring four or five more underwriting agencies, bought a platform in the US, hired a head of global cargo, a head of global construction, and a head of financial lines. So, yeah, I think we're on a, on a groove at the moment. Yes. We'll,
0: we'll watch this space and then we'll have you back on the show at some point in the future thank you very much thanks for having us thanks so much
1: well i hope you enjoyed today's
0: episode if you did don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program these really help get the word out before we go just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the voice of insurance podcasts podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers it's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience, because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost-effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform.